But people have to believe in the messenger before they'll believe the message. So if you become the leader of a new group, initially you want to get things done. You want to make things happen. You want to change things. You want to make progress. But take a little bit of time one-on-one -on -one, to get to know those that work with you so that they develop that relationship with you on which you can build then those actions that you expect people to take. Hi there, I'm Ben Morton and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It is the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's absolutely free. This week, folks, I am super excited to bring you a second interview with one of the world's foremost leadership researchers and authors, Jim Cousins. Jim is the co-author of the Leadership Challenge, now in the seventh edition following the latest round of global research. I first had the pleasure of interviewing Jim back on episode 64 of the show, and if you've not listened to that episode, please go and listen to it straight after this one. And if you did listen to it at the time, go and listen to it again because it is packed full of gold dust. This short episode, though, today's episode has been planned for many months and it is going to be equally valuable for you, if not more so. We get to hear directly from Jim what people really want from a leader. He also shares with, with us how this has changed over the past few years as a result of COVID. So enough from me, folks. Let's get straight into the gold. And please let me reintroduce you to Jim Cousins, co-author of The Leadership Challenge. Jim, a very warm welcome back to the podcast. We first had you on in episode 64. Can't believe I'm, I'm saying that, but really been looking forward to talking to you again, especially as I know the seventh edition of the book. Is it is it out, available to buy now or about to come out? It is out now. Amazing. I shall be uh, going to get myself a copy ordered ordered soon because actually I'm still on the, the fifth edition here, which is looking pretty dog-eared. So I'm looking forward to getting the, the latest version. <laughs> well, make sure I get your mailing address and I'll make sure you get that copy. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Jim, I'm going to start shortly getting you to talk about what, if anything, has changed in the research. But maybe for those who haven't listened to our previous episode those that aren't familiar with the book, before we get to what might or might not have changed, can you just give us a, a short um, overview on the, the research the research process that you've been conducting for many years now? Well, in 1983, Barry Posner and I, my co-author, when we were both at Santa Clara University, are now independent. Uh, Barry is still at Santa Clara as a full professor. We were talking about our common interests, and one of those was exploring leadership best practices. Uh, we called it personal best leadership experiences. It was at a time when people were looking at best companies. We thought we'd look at best leadership. So we began exploring it by simply asking the question of 
primarily middle managers at the time, to tell us a story about their personal best leadership experience. So we collected a number of cases and began to analyze them. And as we collected those cases and analyzed them, we found that there were some common themes in their stories of when they did their best. And literally, Ben, we would sit down with three by five cards. This was before computers enabled us to do this analysis. And we wrote phrases of what people said they did, you know, one sentence at a time. And then we sorted them into piles, literally in Kenna Hall 107 at Santa Clara University. And we found that there were six or seven factors that seemed to make a difference. We later then created an instrument now called the Leadership Practices Inventory to measure those behaviors and came up with what today is a 30-item questionnaire that we continue to use and happy to share a little bit of that current data from that. And as we looked at that data, both the cases and the the survey data, we found that these patterns held up. We ended up with five factors. Uh, We call them practices, which are model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. And so the research was, just to summarize, case studies, thousands of them, survey leadership practices inventory, initially asking leaders and then leaders in direct reports in the 360 format and came up with a framework which we call the five practices of exemplary leadership. Amazing. I love the five practices. The other bit that I've always found fascinating from the research and anyone who's ever listened to this podcast or certainly anyone who's ever worked with me will have heard me talking about the part of the research where you look at the traits or characteristics that people say they look for in an admired leader. And it still blows my mind to this day that those top four had never changed. It had consistently been the top four, right? Although the, the order had changed. But you've since done another round of research that brings in the, the maybe COVID factor. Has, has anything changed there? Well, we, so the characteristics of admired leaders was the second part of that re- research that Barry and I did. We decided to ask constituents, what do you look for in a leader? and see if what people looked for and the exemplary practices that showed up in those stories uh, matched up. And so the characteristics of admired leaders data actually predated the uh, work on the Leadership uh, Challenge book, but was incorporated into it. And we have continued to do that research. We just updated it and published a table of the data from 1987, the first edition of Leadership Challenge, to 2023, the seventh edition. and. Yes, you're right. The data still show that the top four characteristics which people look for and admire in a leader have held up. Wow. The percentages have changed over time, yet the top four, the big four we are now calling them, are are consistent across all these years of doing the research. Wow. And I believe honesty has always been the one that gets the most votes. Is, is that still top of the list, as it were? It, it is. It still is. It's been in the mid to 
high 80s ever since we 80 percent of the people select honest as one of the characteristics that they look for in admiring a leader and it's been in the high to mid 80s ever since we started uh 83 percent in 1987 and 87 percent in 2023 wow and is, is that latest research did that surprise you jim were, were you kind of expecting a, a change because it's a, a lot has changed right in the world since between the sixth and the seventh seventh round were you anticipating any changes my goodness yeah uh it certainly has a lot of change and what we we were a little concerned about what influence fake news social media uh might have had on people's aspirations for leaders what they want them to have, not necessarily what they do. Mm. And in fact, if you take just honest as the focus, well, one of the characteristics, people's ratings of honesty among leaders, particularly in large institutions, has declined, but their desire for it has stayed about the same. So we, we're we hopeful, but I guess we, we, still, we, we still want leaders to be honest and ethical and have integrity, even if uh, our perception of them currently isn't, is that many of them do not. Yeah, well, that uh, gives us leaders something to, to hang on to and work towards, right? We, we still know what it is that people are looking for from us. Yeah, and while we're on that, let me just add that if these are what people desire and what they look for. And, and, they're, and when we look at what they get, the, their perception, it's their perceptions of it. When you create a category like members of Congress here in the United States uh, or members of the legislature or uh, you look at senior management, those categories, when we, when we're asked, we ask people to rate those categories, they tend to rate them lower. But when you say, how about your leader or your immediate manager, you see the ratings go up. Okay. And so the closer someone is to us, the higher their ratings around honesty. Hmm. Uh, the farther away they are, the perception of, of their honesty uh, always is lower. Hmm. That's interesting. It gets me wondering if that same pattern plays out in most um, employee engagement surveys that happen all around the world? Because that's normally a question that gets asked in those surveys, isn't it? You ask questions about your immediate yeah. manager and questions about the leadership of the organization. Like it strikes me, my, my, my gut feeling is it would probably play out in a similar way, I would imagine. Yeah, yes, it does. So if we, if we just look at ratings of asking about your manager and compare it to somebody who's more distant at a more senior level, those closest to you always are rated more favorably. And that also raises an important question for leaders and also an important action for leaders. The question is, do you trust people more whom you know? When we, we ask that question, most people will say, well, it's, it's people whom I know, not people whom I don't know. Now, people might say, well, I know somebody really well that I, I don't believe is honest at all. I know that. But it, that's the exception, not the rule. We tend to trust and believe in the honesty and integrity of people we know better than those we don't know. And so one of the actions for leaders is to make sure that people get to know you beyond your title and beyond your job description, get to know you personally, get to know a little bit more about you, uh, because people, when they know a bit more about you, tend to trust you more. 
and I guess that speaks directly to to the first leadership practice, right? Sort of find your voice, affirm, firm share value, because that helps you to know and connect with those you're working with. Absolutely. Now, people have to believe in the messenger before they'll believe the message. I love that. And so it's really creating that belief in you as an initial step as a leader. So if you become the leader of a new group, initially you want to get things done. You want to make things happen. You want to, you want to leave a mark. You want to change things. You want to make progress. But take a little bit of time one-on-one to get to know those that work with you so that they learn more about you, learn about your competence, learn about your skills, and learn about your experience, learn about your family, so that they develop that relationship with you on which you can build then those actions that you expect people to take. Yeah. Jim, you've just taken me straight back to being 21 years old at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, where it's just drummed into me again and again as a young officer cadet in, in, in the army to get to know your soldiers. Absolutely. It was a overt teaching. It was a covert teaching. It was a subliminal message as well as a direct message that if we wanted anybody to, to follow us and potentially make the ultimate sacrifice, they would only do that if they knew we knew them as a person we cared about them we knew about their husbands wives boyfriends girlfriends etc and you're so right Jim, aren't you it, it can be the bit in our haste to do the stuff or deliver objectives or make a mark it's it's the bit that can easily get forgotten isn't it uh, absolutely it sure can and and your experience personally is backed up by empirical data on the military when when uh, frontline soldiers are asked to rate their leaders on trust, the more highly they're rated on trust, that I trust my my leader, they are much more likely to follow that person. So uh, your personal experience is backed up by research and and, and ours as well. The, the higher people are rated on honesty, on trustworthiness, the more likely it is people will be willing to follow them. Yeah, and that's the key, isn't it? The willingness. The willingness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Jim, other than the top four, did you say the big four you're referring to them as? Yeah, we're calling them the big, well, I call them the big four because they've been at the top since the very beginning of the research we, we started. So other, other than the big four then, are there any other, let's call them big movers and shakers in those characteristics and traits? Any others that have dramatically shifted or taken on more significance in the latest round of research? Well, when we first started, we were right in the middle of the pandemic collecting our data. In fact, the the pandemic actually delayed delivering the book by a year because we wanted to make sure we had current data to see what had changed, if anything, as you say. And a couple of things popped up that did increase uh, by a statistically significant number, not necessarily all that big a number, but it's significant. And the one that most increased in its importance to people was supportive. Uh, now, supportive was always kind of in the middle of the pack, you know, maybe the upper third, but it increased to, to I think, sixth position. So we have 20 characteristics that get rated, and supportive was sort of in the middle over time. It's moved up, and that one more so than any of the others. Uh, so that's an important thing to pay attention to. And, and when we reflect on that, 
I think it's understandable when people are going through difficulty, when people are going through challenging times, when people are going through adversity, they want to know that their leader has their back, is going to support them uh, in these times of crisis and difficulty. So again, when we're involved in challenging times, extreme circumstances, we have to make sure as leaders that we provide the adequate support. You know, some people really experienced mental health problems during the pandemic where they felt isolated, they felt disconnected, they felt stressed out, worried, they perhaps were working from home with family members and kids around. It impacted their mental health. Students were at home missing their friends at school. We as leaders need to pay attention to that, even though we may be get trying to in, encourage people to do their work. We needed to pay more attention to these other issues during that time. So the message people were sending us is, hey, it's, it's really important to me right now. Caring also moved up a bit mm-hmm. uh, during that time as well. And dependability, dependability, again, is one of those like supported that had been sort of in the middle of the pack. But it also moved up in its importance during that period of time. So a couple of them moved, and it's understandable why they were more important during the last three years or so uh, than they were previously. So we'll have to see if the the current emphasis on support, caring around some of the more personal issues that people are facing holds up. Although Gen Z, the young, younger workers who are joining the workforce now, of course, are bringing those experiences with them, and uh, they may continue to have an emphasis on that. The demand for flexibility is another thing that we're seeing in younger workers. So, and that's sort of a reflection of, uh, of support me, support my way of doing things because I'm going through this massive change in my life. Hey, quick one for you. I want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program. It's an online program that's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. Jim, that's a brilliant segue there, actually. Um, something else I wanted to ask you came from someone who was on a leadership program I was running recently, actually. It was at um, Samsung in, in the UK. And the question what you just alluded to there, they asked, does what people look for and want from a leader, does it vary significantly at all across the across the generations? And I don't know about you, I'm I'm always slightly wary of any generational conversations because undoubtedly there are there are differences right between generations but personally I tend to be of the mind that as human beings there's probably more that connects us and we have in common than than separates us but are are there any particularly notable differences well I'm I'm in uh in your camp on that one Ben uh I I hesitate to generalize about generations uh, each individual has has their own experiences, but given that, you know, we all go through different types of experiences that shape us. You know, when I grew up, uh, 
It was the Cold War, and uh, it was civil rights. Uh, it was the war in Vietnam and the protests. And, you know, I reflect back on my youth, and I, I see that those influenced my behaviors at the time and kind of things that were important to me. And so for Gen X, Gen Z, there are those contextual changes in their lives or dynamics in their lives that do influence their attitudes. Having said that, when we look at the data, what we see is that, again, those big four show up on the radar of all the generations we've studied over time. Uh, And so Gen Z... I was born between 1990 and 1999, I think, is the is how they're categorized. And Gen X, uh, you know, 65 to 77, as looking at an earlier generation. If I just look at those two, people would be aged 23 to 32 versus 45 to 57. They still select the four at the top of the list. Honest is number one on both those lists, and in fact, all the lists. That uh, if we categorize it by age, but they all show up. The one that younger workers tend to younger people in general, college students, and we, we also survey uh, this shows up with them as well. Is that forward-looking is rated lower okay. than those who are in the workplace, say at the middle manager level, more senior levels, non managerial personnel tend not to rate forward-looking very high. And so that's an important thing for us to understand. And when we look by level, regardless of age, if you look by level, regardless of age, so someone who's in their 30s might be the CEO of a small company, you see that forward-looking is higher. So why is that? Why is it that people in more senior positions rate forward-looking as a preferred leadership quality? Why might they rate forward-looking more important than, say, somebody of the same age who's a, a supervisor or a, a frontline employee? Well, the answer is if you are at a more senior level, you have to think broader. You have to think bigger. You have to think in more years because you're making investments. You're making decisions about strategy and resource allocation based not just on what's happening in the next three months, but what's happening in the next three years or five or 10, depending on the size of the organization, even 20 years. And so you have to look out more. And so I think that's an important dynamic that we need to understand. And yes, coming into the workplace at a young age, I'm more concerned about you know learning my job, building my skills, mm-hmm. making sure that I have uh, the kind of job that fits my strengths. Uh, getting to know people around me, making sure I deliver immediately on results. But as I learn to supervise others and I I grow to middle level and senior management, if that's the path I wish to take, then I need to think longer term. And if I'm going to become an exemplary leader as a young person, I need to set my sights not only on the goals and objectives in the next few months, but what I'm going to be doing five years from now. 10 years from now, what's the environment telling me? What are the changes that are taking place in technology, in society, in economics, in in customer preferences? What is it? What's happening out there? And what are the implications of that for the longer term? Reminds me of the phrase, uh, listening to you talk, Jim, I think I heard it from uh, one of the female 
soccer national soccer soccer players here in the UK that she said you can't be it if you can't see it I think it's true as you start to step into more senior roles you start to think about being that more strategic leader and if you don't have a role model or an exemplar of somebody who is being forward-facing and forward-looking it's hard to it's hard to know what you should be doing right absolutely and you know when we ask people when when we cover this topic in the workshops we do and the classes we teach uh, and we have dialogue about this you can see the light bulb go off and people understand oh i now understand why forward looking is on the list i understand why it's important to be you know, we, we kiddingly say to to, to students who we know that for you uh, forward looking is the weekend i'm looking forward to the weekend <laughs> uh, and you know you're also looking forward to the job you'll get when you graduate. You're also looking forward to perhaps taking a vacation with your family in a couple of years. We we have the te- all of us have have that tendency to look forward, but just gaining some understanding of why it's important to develop the capacity and there there are skills associated with it. It's it's not just some magical thing that happens and you get enlightened. Uh, it doesn't come from out there, you know, magically to you. It's something that you develop as, as a set of practices. So I need to read more. I need to read more outside of my own field. I need to search for ideas outside of my own bubble and, and, and see what other people are doing with the technology that I might be working on or with, with the type of industry that I'm in or the organiza- type of organization that I'm in. I, I need to enrich my life with more information than just what I'm currently uh, focused on doing. Yeah, that makes sense. And Jim, probably the penultimate question for you for you today just occurred to me as well, the question I often get asked when I'm talking about your, your brilliant research is around the independent characteristic, which in the, the fifth edition of the book, which I've got at least, I think that was rated as one of the least desirable traits. I'm just curious to understand a little bit more about what does that independent characteristic actually mean? I mean, in my mind, I think of it as being the the opposite of collaborative is is that right or or am i off base there yes uh you're on you're on target independent interestingly enough is rated is not selected by people as one of the most desired characteristics of a leader we don't want someone who acts on their own who makes decisions on their own uh, that a person who just consults themselves Mm. as to what to do and how to act becomes an autocrat as a leader. Uh, It's my way or the highway. Uh, And so we don't want to work with people like that. And it's a great characteristic for somebody who is an inventor working by him or herself. Actually, it's very hard to be an inventor and not be collaborative these days. But uh, someone who... Uh, writers need to be a bit independent, uh, but if you're gonna, if I'm gonna switch on my leadership and into my leadership role and try to guide others to to enlist others in a common vision, I'm gonna have to switch out of that mode of being independent, become more cooperative and collaborative. And so, 
we don't want leaders who act independently when we're working inside an organization with a team of people. Uh, we don't want team members who work that way either. Makes sense. We value entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs often have that very independent streak. You know, they want to break away from the norm. They want to do their own thing, and that's a wonderful quality. But often entrepreneurs don't succeed in, uh, when they become CEO of an organization because they can be so diff disruptive with that independence. They can take the organization in directions they ought not to be going in. They can uh, be disruptive to the cohesiveness of a team. And so we, we need, if we're going to become exemplary leaders, really need to help people to learn how to maintain that when it's useful and helpful to the organization, maybe to challenge something. But when we're working together on producing a product or serving a customer, delivering a service, we need to be able to be uh, much more collaborative. And Jim, final question, which wasn't the final question I planned to ask you, but it, it's just such a privilege for me being able to tap into your your expertise that I, I, I want to ask this follow-up question based on independent. So first part of the question is, has that independent characteristic, has that climbed up the, the rankings at all? And the specific reason I'm asking that question is, Probably over the past 18 months, I've noticed when I've been working with some leadership and executive teams, this isn't from a big data pool at all, but from about four, maybe five organizations I've worked with, when I've been talking to some senior members of that leadership team about the, the team, what works well, kind of what they like about the MD or CEO, what they think they could do differently, there's a slight theme emerging where they are saying they would like the leader sometimes to be a little more more directive. And it strikes me that maybe it's because of there's been such a focus on collaboration and consensus in a lot of the leadership and management press over the past few years. I slightly wonder if some leaders have shifted perhaps too far to the collaboration consensus end of the spectrum and have forgotten that actually sometimes whilst we we do want our leaders to to involve us there are times actually when we look to our leader and think we well, just make the decision just just tell us tell us what we're doing like what are your thoughts on that and has independent moved up the rankings at all no it has not independence is is the lowest and has remained the lowest oh, interesting throughout the time we've collected data in 1987 it was 10% today it's 6% so actually it's decreased if we look at 35, 36 years ago. But I think your point is well taken. Uh, people want a leader who holds people accountable to a set of standards. I think that's different than being directive. Hmm. So if you go back to the first practice of model the way, we need to, as individuals, be clear on our values and beliefs. Uh, and we need to have to inspire a shared vision. We need to have a vision of the future, and we need to enlist other people in moving in that direction. Once we've decided on that direction, and once we've set those values and beliefs as our shared standards for behavior and our shared vision for the future, we want leaders to hold themselves accountable. That is by modeling the way, setting an example. And by holding others accountable, 
And in that sense, you do need to be directive. You do need to, without literally telling other people what to do or else, but remind people continuously, here's where we're going. Here's what our standards are. Here's what our values and beliefs are. We need to behave consistently with those uh, that vision and values uh, so that we can accomplish what we agreed we were going to accomplish. That requires being a bit more directive, uh, but not in the independence set, uh, because independence implies that, well, if I don't like you know, what's happening right now, I'll just change what we're doing, and then I'll direct other people to move in that direction. So I don't see the two as the same, but I, I do think your point is well taken, that we do expect leaders to hold themselves and other people accountable. Brilliant. Makes sense. Jim, it's been fantastic talking to you and diving into to the research and what's changed. It's always a great, great pleasure talking to you. Do you think there'll be an eighth version one day? Barry and I always talk about at the end of the seventh edition, and and we, we always conclude that the answer is maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we we have been talking about it, and it's, it's likely uh, we may approach it a little bit differently in that, you know, uh, I'll be – if we do a seventh edition, I'll be in my 80s. So, I mean, an eighth edition. So we, we, we may uh, recruit someone to help us work on it, but we haven't worked with before. But it is something that is a possibility. Yes. You're looking well for your years, Jim. You're looking well. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll put a uh, link to the latest edition of the book and, and indeed to, to your website in the show notes for folks listening so they can they can find out more. Um, but yeah, once again, Jim, thank you so much for, for your time and sharing all your insights with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brent. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have a conversation with you today. That's it for this episode and a huge thank you for listening to the show and tuning in. At this stage, I only ask one thing of you that I promise will take no more than two or three minutes maximum. Wherever you happen to be listening, please click on the subscribe button and then leave a one sentence review. That's it. It makes all the difference and means we can continue to grow our channels and bring you even better guests in the future that you can learn from. That's it for this episode, folks. If you want to talk to me about the show, leave me some feedback or recommend a guest you'd like me to try and get hold of, then do please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership. Until then, until next time, look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And until then, lead on. Lead on.